Well, good morning, everyone. If you have your Bible, please do take it and turn to Matthew 5 or on your electronic device if you want to get there. We're going to be looking at verses 31 to 37 this morning, talking about keeping our commitments. Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to start reading uh, from verse 33, and then we're going to skip back up to verse 31. So Matthew 5, starting verse 33, this is Jesus speaking, and he says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now we skip up, hold that in the background, and now we skip up, back up to verse 31. Again, these are the words of Jesus. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. We're going to be talking about marriage and divorce this morning. And as I'm thinking about this topic, I had this image that come into mind. She looked beautiful on this day. And as she came into view, I was looking at the groom. He had been in my wedding party, and now I was in his. And I so vividly remember on my day, when my bride walked down the aisle, I was holding it together so well emotionally. We, we didn't take pictures before, so this was like the moment. And I'm holding it together emotionally, and then I glance at my wedding party beside me, and there he is, leaking all over. And of course, that was all I needed to trigger the the well of gush in my own face and eyes, and I started bawling at the same time. And yes, on this day, his day, as I looked over, there he is, leaking all over again. We understand that. Such joy, such deep, rich feelings on a wedding day. A lot of you have been to a wedding this summer, or maybe you're even anticipating one coming up this fall. And and as we approach that, there's this, there's such expectation of hope and fulfillment and joy of a life together with that other person. That was then. Marriage. But this is now, divorce. In chapter 5, verse 31, Jesus says, it was also said. And in case you're just joining us this summer, we've been going through what is called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. It goes all the way to the end of chapter 7. We're just looking at chapter 5 this summer, next summer. Uh, We hope to do chapter 6 and 7, but as we go through this chapter, what we've experienced so far is Jesus has sat down on this mountain, his close disciples are around him, but from what we can gather, there's all these other people that are listening in as, as Jesus teaches, and this is the largest body of teaching that we have of Jesus Christ on record, and so it's very, very significant, and it begins with Jesus giving what we call the Beatitudes, and he talks about how blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then he breaks into this statement that talks about how those who are are followers of, of God and in his way, that they will be salt to the earth, like they will be good for the earth. They will be light to the earth. Like, like darkness is not a great thing, but light is good. And, and, and the followers of Jesus Christ will be like that. As Jesus expounds in this sermon, what we call on the mount, his sort of, his dream, his vision for society and the world and how his followers who follow his way will live in it as good for that world. Now we've been picking up, as Jesus continues to teach, these series of statements where Jesus says, you have heard it was said, and and usually when he's saying that, he's prefacing something that was written way back a while ago in the Old Testament. And so he goes, you've heard it was said, but I say unto you, and as Jesus says that, he's not abrogating the law, he's showing its full intent. And, And what is best for us will be experienced when we come under God's ways, under his laws, and then we live by them. That's that's what's best for us. That's what Jesus wants to paint for them here. But there's the rub, because as it was then, so it is now, is that people in hearing Jesus have misinterpreted the law and people misapply it. And the Pharisees were just just like that. They're not irreligious people. They're actually the most religious people but they added to the law. They reinterpreted the law. And so Jesus would be straightening them out as they're listening. But let's not kid ourselves. As he's straightening them out, he's straightening us out too. So that as we, if we're careful listeners, we'll be brought back to God's intentions, to his good ways, his better way. And this morning we're going to see that he has good intentions for our marriages. Matthew 5.31, it was also said... Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. If you weren't here last week, too bad. We talked about sex. I had a number of people tell me, like, thank you. Thank you. Like, this is a church where we can talk about something so relevant to us. And I'm grateful we can be in an environment where I don't get shot down for doing that. But really, all we're doing is we're just unpacking what Jesus has talked about. Jesus talked about sex. And so this week we're talking about divorce because Jesus talked about it. And yeah, this may not be easy and and it may be uncomfortable because I know, you know, that probably right here this morning there are people who have been divorced. There's people who perhaps you are separated And all of us most likely have been touched by a close friend or a family who has or is going through this kind of marital breakdown. So my question this morning to us is before we dive into this, and please do not raise your hand, but mentally, if I was to ask you, has anyone here ever been wrongfully angry at someone? Don't raise your hand. Has anyone here lusted after someone who is not your spouse, either a real physical person or a visual image in some way. Has anybody done that? 
Has anyone here not kept their word where you said, I'm going to show up at such and such a time and you, you just didn't want to do it so you didn't go and you made up a lame excuse? Anybody here ever done that? Has anyone been injured by someone, either emotionally or even physically, and you made sure somehow in some way you would get even? Anybody here ever done that? See, unless you are Jesus, I'm guessing if we are truthful, every single person in this room would have raised their hands probably more than one time. So I want to say, first of all, right at the, at the start to, to those who are sitting in the room this morning that maybe have been divorced, going through it, or you're separated, you're in marital strife, that unlike the Pharisees, we do not want to sit among you with self-righteous judgment pointing fingers, but we sit among you as those who have also failed, even if in less obvious and public ways, who also as we sit among you, need the grace of God and his forgiveness as we live. Let's just make that real clear this morning. But just like we need to take law-breaking of angry, anger seriously, just like we need to take the breaking of God's ways and sex outside of marriage seriously, just like we need to take the breaking of an oath, the exercise of vengeance, so we also need to take seriously the commitments that we make in marriage. Matthew 5.31, it was also said, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, when Jesus uh, talks about this in, in verse 31, he's referring to the instruction that God gave the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy means the second reading of the law. So just before the children of Israel, after they'd wandered in the desert for, for disobedience for 40 years, and they're going go to they're gonna go back to take the promised land, before, the, before they did, Moses rehearsed before them the giving of the law. And so that God had given to their parents. So in verse 24, we hear these words, or chapter 24, verses 1 to 4. I'm going to read them to you in its entirety. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, now we've highlighted that word for you because it's most important in our conversation, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not, may not take her again to be his wife. After she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. God took this very seriously, so much so that if they would practice this sort of unbridled divorce, that it would have an impact on the very land that they lived in. And God's instructions does two things here. First of all, it protects the life of a woman, and it protects the, the sacredness or the value of marriage itself. See, a man could not just dismiss his wife on a whim. Men had all the power. So 
They could just, you know, okay, away with you. And, and he's the one who, who, who has the, usually the power, the ways the, to, to bring in the bread and feed the family. And, but he couldn't just divorce a wife on a whim. He had to produce a certificate of divorce, which the woman then had in her hand as irrefutable proof that she'd been released from the marriage that she had been in and released from her marital obligations to that man. It would be stamped, dated. She had a hard copy. And we have just a, a picture of the wording that was, would be typical on an ancient divorce certificate. Now with that certificate in hand, she could remarry if she had the opportunity. But her first husband could not later change his mind. The law forbid him to call his previously divorced woman back to her. So let's say he tries another woman out as a wife and it doesn't go so well and he, he discovers that wife number one was better than wife number two and she becomes available again either through death or divorce. It was forbidden for him to go back and call that woman into marriage again with him. He has only one chance with any particular woman and that helped protect women in this way. A man would have to think long and hard before divorcing her. What we need to see from this is God is not commanding divorce. He is regulating it. So we fast forward to Jesus. And during Jesus' time, there were these two leading rabbis who taught differently on the subject of divorce. And again, let's remind ourselves, in Jewish culture, still then, men carry the hammer as to what happens. So typically, they were the ones, and they alone, who could initiate divorce. There was a rabbi, his name was Shammai. He taught that divorce was only lawful for marital unfaithfulness of the wife, similar to the indecency, perhaps, of Deuteronomy chapter 24. But there was a rabbi, Hillel, who taught that this word indecency could mean practically anything. If a man was displeased in his wife, I mean, think it up. Didn't make the bed right. Burned the coffee, if they drank coffee back then. She put on weight. He found someone more attractive. This indecency was considered to be a legitimate grounds for divorce. That's what Hillel taught. This is like divorce on a whim. This is no-fault divorce, version 2.0. And we know that that does not go so well personally and for the individual and for society. A guy named Pat Conroy, he was the, an author. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Prince of Tides. I haven't, but it was at one time nominated for several Oscars. He wrote that. He also wrote about the breakdown of his marriage, his first marriage. And I just want to read to you a bit of a lengthy uh, quote from what he has to say. Because I think it's important for us to realize the pain that's involved in a divorce. That's what he says from his own personal experience. Each divorce is the death of a small civilization. Two people declare war on each other and their screams and tears infect their entire world with the bacilli of their pain. The greatest fury comes from the wound where love once issued forth. I find it hard to believe how many people now get divorced, how many submit to such extraordinary pain. For there are no clean divorces. Divorces should be conducted in surgical wards. In my own case, I think it would have been easier if Barbara, his wife, had died. I would have been gallant at her funeral and shed real tears. 
Far easier than staring across the table, telling each other it was over. It was a killing thing to look at the mother of my children and know that we would not be together for the rest of our lives. It was terrifying to say goodbye, to reject a part of my own history. When I went through my divorce, I saw it as a country, and it was treeless, airless. There are no furloughs and no holidays. I entered without passport, without directions, and absolutely alone. Insanity and hopelessness grew in that land like fast orchards of malignant fruit. I do not know the precise day that I arrived in that country, nor am I certain that you can ever renounce your citizenship there. But there are no metaphors powerful enough to describe the moment when you tell the children about the divorce. Divorces without children are minor league divorces. To look into the eyes of your children and to tell them that you are mutilating their family and changing all their tomorrows is an act of desperate courage that I never want to repeat. It is also their parents' last act of solidarity and in the absolute sign that the marriage is over. It felt as though I had doused my entire family with gasoline and struck a match. He goes on to say, For a year I walked around feeling as if I had undergone a lobotomy. There were records I could not listen to because of their association with Barbara, poems I could not read from books I could not pick up. There's a restaurant I will never return to because it was the scene of an angry argument between us. It was a year when memory was an acid. There's such pain that a husband and wife endure in the process of divorce. And as Conroy alludes to, there's the pain of the children. See, no matter how civil mom and dad are, in fact, sometimes when mom and dad are civil, that's even more confusing for the children because they think, well, you used to fight before, now you're so civil that you're broken up. Why, why couldn't you have made it work? No matter how civil it is, it, it, we have to acknowledge that divorce is not pain-free for the kids. There's an organization called Divorce Canada. They talk about the many effects, both short and long-term, of divorce Short-term effects include children feeling guilty or responsible when they don't understand. They can become aggressive or, or violent to everyone around them, become emotionally needed because they're, they're afraid of being abandoned again. They can become depressed, feeling angry and resentful, lose the ability to concentrate, and experience intense feelings of grief. And then there's the long, long-term negative effects that can rise up. When those children, when they want to establish a a relationship of marriage of their own, there's a struggle with it because of what they've gone through as kids. Then there's the impact of children being raised without the, the presence of their father, which so often happens. And we know the, the statistics behind that are just so discouraging and crime being one of them. And then there's the impact on our society as a whole. Even economically, the increase of divorce leads to so often women commonly tragically falling into more poverty because of a busted-up marriage. All that to say this. As Jesus paints a, a picture of the dream society that he would have for it, the ideal, what he would really want, divorce is not part of that picture. And every time we get outside of the better way that Jesus wants for us, we suffer individually and we suffer as a society the consequences. Michael Berger, who's from uh, 
Emory University wrote, the original intention of relaxing the divorce laws well, it was to allow individuals trapped in bad marriages to exit easily. However, as noble as this objective may have been, demographer surveys have shown that the number of unhappy marriages has not dwindled. To the contrary, there are far fewer happy marriages. Divorce hurts us all. It's got to be a better way. So later in his gospel, Matthew chapter 19, Matthew addresses divorce again. And he, he relates a story this time where the, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask him straight up about this controversy between Hillel and Shammai. In verse 3 of chapter 19, it says, And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, how would you have answered that? Jesus answered it not by talking about divorce, but first by talking about marriage. See, if you, if you want to know something about divorce, you really got to know something about marriage. Like, what was it about? What was it created for before you talk about destroying it? So Jesus goes back to God's original intent. Because in divorce, it's obvious that we've lost the meaning of what God has for it. And Jesus' reply brings us back to God's design from the beginning that we have lost our way from. He says in verse 4 of chapter 19, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus goes right back to the beginning of Genesis, so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So, so in the beginning, and the dream that Jesus still has for his kingdom, that there would be men and women who'd be united as couples, two people of the opposite sex, specific genders, committed to one another, characterized by exclusive commitment. And we see that in those words, that a man will leave his family and hold fast. These are, these are strong words of exclusive commitment. And as it develops from the first couple, Adam and Eve, and you see it through Old Testament history, around that commitment was developed the, the formality of a covenant, a binding commitment to one another. And, and to see how serious that covenant would be, we get, a, we get a glimpse of one of the ways people would enter into covenant in Genesis, I think it's chapter 15, where, where God enter, enters into covenant with Abraham and he has these animals cut in half and then laid out in parallel fashion. That's what they would do sometimes to enter into covenant. They'd cut animals in half, lay them in parallel fashion, and then they would walk between those animals in a pictorial way saying, if I do not keep this covenant, if I do not live up to my commitment, may God do so to me what has happened to these animals. God's intention was that the man and the woman would come together in exclusive commitment to one another and be committed to the purposes of God as he had called them into it together. That they would exist not just for themselves, we see in the beginning, but they'd exist as one complementary unit, raising a family, and that because of them, the earth, the, the, the world would flourish because of their relationship. It was not just for themselves, but for the good of all. 
husband and wife. A unity so powerful, it's, it's called one flesh, solemnized by commitment and experienced in their physical intimacy, which we talked about last week, that, that just is like a, uh, a chemical bonding in us as human beings to that other person. This is the design. This is the plan of God for his people so that our world will, would flourish. And so much God's design that it could be said that God himself has joined those two together. God has joined them together. So God's intention, as, as we saw last week, is for good in that relationship. And we also saw last week, you don't have to be married. You don't have to experience sex to experience a, a wonderful, great life. Jesus is the obvious case in point to that regard. But for those who are married, or if you're thinking about getting married, or you're working towards getting married, this is God's intention, that this relationship would be beautiful, that it'd be powerful, that it'd be complementary, that it'd be fruitful, that it'd be creative, that it would be exclusive, and that it'd be permanent, joined, that is glued together. And that is why it's so painful when it's ripped apart. So thinking of Deuteronomy 24 and if you're looking for a loophole, you're, you're asking the wrong question. Our focus should not be on, you know, when can we divorce, but how can we align with God's intention? How can we align with the commitments we have made to one another through God's intention to make marriage better? How can we do that? Verse 7 of Matthew 19, they said to him, well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. So we see that divorce was never God's intent. It was a, it was a concession because people's hearts were hard. At, at the root of, of every divorce, in some way, there is, there is sin. There's a hardening of the heart, if not towards God, then towards one another, and God gave this concession, but it was not the better way. So we need to know God's view for marriage, this oneness, this flourishing, this partnership, this harmony, this creation, this selflessness. But if you know anything about people, that's, that's going to take something miraculous. It's going to take work. And sometimes it takes hard work. That's contrary to the, the message that we so often hear about what relationships should be like, what marriages should be like. When it comes to marriage, so often the messages that we hear that it's all about being in love. And that being in love really usually has all to do about our emotions and our feelings and not so much that love is also about keeping our commitments. That to love someone is to do what I say and to follow through on what I've committed to, that that perhaps is the greatest and deepest expression of love. You know, at the start, when guy and girl come together, it's usually much easier to feel good about your relationship. And, you know, the wedding day, everything, of course, usually is arranged so that things look, you know, perfect and whatnot. But 
as time goes on, it gets more difficult. Gary Chapman, we had him here, a marriage expert, talking to us once about all that. And he talks about in the early stages, I don't know, these chemicals happen in us, and we get tingles. We get tingles for one another. But those tingles do not last forever, and they weren't meant to last forever. At some point, they dissipate. So if you're always looking for the feel-good emotions and the tingles, you're going to be bouncing from one relationship to another. And when the tingles end and you think you've got to find them again, you're just, you're just going to keep going through that cycle because that's not the way it's supposed to work. And it can be easier at the start, but then you know as you, as you get married, things, things are going to challenge that relationship. The things that once attracted you to your husband, if you're married this, this morning, you know, that, that sense of humor he had and that sort of free spirit that he had isn't so attractive anymore when the bills aren't getting paid. See, the, the things that we once really liked about each other now become a place of contention and often there's financial pressure and oh, there's all kinds of things that get mixed into it and sometimes kids show up on the scene. That's natural, but when kids show up on the scene, there's all these demands for time and energy. And if you don't pour energy into your relationship, all of a sudden it's like, where, where did it go? What happened to our relationship? The feeling's not there anymore. And the message that we so often hear is you got to be true to yourself. you got to be true to your feelings. How do you feel? And, and if it's not feeling right, and I don't feel like putting in the hard work, then divorce seems like such an attractive option. Michelle Weiner Davis, I was reminded of her book called The Divorce Remedy when I was, years ago, um, working with clients in the financial business, you know, it wasn't unusual for there all of a sudden to be, uh, they'd bring up the subject that they're struggling in, in, a relationship, in their marriage relationship, and of course that affects their finances. And, and sometimes I would give them this book written by Michelle that was called Divorce Busters because she wasn't a Christian, I don't think she is, but as I read through it, it was just such good biblical principles without her knowing it. And so I would give that to them and it would be helpful. She writes in, her, in another book after that, The Divorce Remedy, this. The divorce trap seduces over one million people each year. It promises peace and tranquility. It offers a fresh start, a second chance at romance, contentment, and self-discovery. It lures people into thinking that by walking out the door, they can eliminate life's seemingly insurmountable problems when you're desperately unhappy, these so-called guarantees are hard to resist. But she doesn't land on give in to it. She lands on, if at all possible, if in any way, make your marriage work. And it doesn't take two people, from her point of view, to begin that process. All it takes is you and your willingness to begin. She's given her life to individuals and saving marriages because she so believes they are worth saving. So when we ask the question, what is a lawful divorce, we're asking the wrong question. And Jesus says to them in Matthew 19, verse 9, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. 
Go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So we, we, we look at divorce and we see that Jesus is saying this is incredibly serious and to break the, the marriage vow is to adulterate the marriage. It has shock value in his statement. Jesus does give a grounds for divorce and, and when he does give a ground for divorce, it would have been automatic, I think, that the, a first century Jew hearing that would have known they had the complete freedom to remarry after that point. Some argue that, but that's where I, where I think I would stand. So the grounds for biblical divorce that Jesus gives here is adultery. If someone has adulterated the marriage already, then you could have a divorce and you're not adulterating it. Paul expands it to that another issue would be abandonment. If a Christian was married to another person, they weren't a Christian, like they'd become a Christian, and because of that, the person who's not a follower of Jesus wants to abandon their relationship. Paul says, you're not bound under that sense. You're free. So in the New Testament, the, the clearest grounds that were given are for adultery and abandonment. We see in Deuteronomy and Exodus, talks about when the, the husband does not take care of the spouse. And so uh, for some uh, cases, we see that there are issues of abuse that would simply be a total destruction of a covenant. But, but again, we've got to ask the right question is not just when, when can we be divorced, but how can we save the marriages? How can we be a place, an environment that champions marriage? And if you're here this morning and you have been divorced and from, scriptural, from, from what you read in the scriptures, maybe you didn't even have a biblical mandate or a, a biblical reason to be divorced, you need to know that just like any sin that we've committed, God's forgiveness, his grace is there and it's, 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 it's acknowledged, God forgives and it's done and you walk in grace. Do we all believe that here? See, I read one guy said, it's easier to sometimes function in a church as a former murderer than a person who's been divorced. And that's just not right. But we want to be the kind of people that can come alongside those that have been wounded and suffered hardship, acknowledge our sin before God, receive his grace, and then continue to move on. As I was um, wrestling with this, and I realized the real uh, implications of what we're talking about this morning, I think God woke me up in the middle of the night one night, and he gave me a picture of, uh, or the phrase in my head, walking with a limp. That when you're divorced and you're a follower of Jesus, you need to understand that perhaps you're just walking with a limp, and that's Okay. Because Paul was a man who walked with a limp. He knew in his past he had murdered, he had persecuted Christians, and he never forgot that. He knew he was forgiven. He knew he was set free, and he walked in freedom. But you couldn't ignore the fact that his past, in the record, he'd done something he was not proud of. And, and so for a person who's been divorced, maybe not proud of it, but you can be forgiven, and you can walk with a limp in a way that glorifies God, as so many others have including the Apostle Paul. 
I don't know, I just had to say that this morning. Having said all that, we want to be the kind of community that fights for marriage. And as Wiener Davis talks about, it is so worth it. So worth the hard work. I want to encourage us that are married. Fight for your marriage. Keep your commitment. It's interesting in the next verses from these two that Jesus has talked about divorce and remarriage. He talks about oaths. Again, you have said, it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. See, it seems like what was going on is people would make a commitment of some sort and then they would swear, but they'd be careful not to invoke God's name. So I swear by Jerusalem. I swear by the earth. So they weren't explicitly bringing God into the conversation, but Jesus says, well, by implicitly, you are, though, because the throne is God's. The earth is his footstool. And Jesus gets to the point. He says, what? Like, you don't need to, you, you shouldn't have to have something back up your word. You should be the kind of people in my kingdom, sons and daughters, light of the world, salt of the earth. You should be the kind of people where your yes means yes. And your no means no. And and, and in this environment that we have today where everything, you know, is so legal, there's so much legal stuff and contracts have to be drawn up for almost anything you do. In that legalistic environment where nobody keeps their commitments, you be different. You be the kind of person where your yes means yes and your no means no. We bring that back to marriage. And that's what Jesus wants for his people. That when a man and a woman stand before God, first of all, and before their family and friends as their witnesses, and they enter this sacred holy moment, Where they say, I'm forsaking all others and I'm committing my life to you. And the words that we say for rich or poor, sickness, health, you, I'm committed to you. When I was a young adult, one of my friends, um, her parents uh, did not have a good relationship. I grew up where my parents had a, a great relationship, so that's what I knew. I praise God for that. Her parents were almost the exact opposite, and they were a Christian couple. They lived under the same roof. They never broke their marriage covenant legally. But they didn't talk to one another. You could walk into their home, cut the air with a knife. There was just this tension They had no relationship. That's not covenant. That's not Jesus' dream for relationship. So when somebody says, well, we're going to stay married to the end, it's not just grit your teeth and hang on. That's not God's desire for you. God's desire is your relationship would be flourishing, that you work through the hard times and you're better for it. That'd be beautiful in that way. It'd go deeper and stronger as you continue to walk together, both through the good times and the hard times, celebrating the good, enjoying the good, enjoying each other, and working out those difficult situations. When we talk about keeping our commitments and our covenant, we're not talking about a 
a relationship where a man says to his wife, you know, well, you, we've got a covenant, so you can't, you can't forsake this. And so he's abusive to his wife because she has, you know, she has no way out in the Christian community. And so he's abusive. And that's not Jesus' dream for his community and for the world. So this morning, as we finish up, I just... You know, I can't accomplish a marriage seminar in, in 40 minutes this morning. I just want to give us some points to, that you could jump off on, like springboards that would help you if you're married, you're thinking about it. But I think even those that are single, some of these things would really help. And first thing is just get things right with Jesus. Get things right with Jesus. Um, to me, that means he's... He's the priority in your life. He's a bigger priority than your spouse. He's a bigger priority than any person in your life. You see, if, you've, if you are looking to your spouse to fulfill all your needs, you are setting yourself up for disappointment and failure. You need to look to Jesus to be the fulfillment of all that you need. And out of that relationship with him, we need to come before him and just soften our hearts and say, God, where I've messed up, forgive me. We need to be in a right place with him, humble ourselves, receive his mercy and grace, soften our hearts before him, and then ask him to do the same. We need to cry out to him for the help of his Holy Spirit. See, Jesus loves to transform us. You know, I, I guarantee you, if... You're struggling in your relationship and, you've spent, and you've, you're spending no time with Jesus and your relationship with him is, is like dead. I guarantee you, if you rekindle that, you come to him and you say, God, I want to rekindle my relationship with you. God's going to start doing things in your life that's going to change the relationship that you have with your spouse because God loves to transform you and make you into a better person. So we start by getting things right with Jesus. The cause of marital breakup, Jesus said, is the hardness of heart. So it's got to begin there. Secondly, we reflect on the gospel. So as you reflect on God's story from Genesis right through to the end, and as you, as you read and you see the things that Jesus has done for us and the nature of God and how he is towards us, that God is merciful, we can then be merciful to our spouse. As God has forgiven us for all kinds of things, then we begin to be way more forgiving with our spouse. As we see how God is an incredible covenant keeper, and we see, oh, I need to commit, I need to keep my commitments as God does towards his people. So that, in fact, what happens, one of the most powerful testimonies to the world is when men and women who claim to be Christ followers have beautiful relationships in their marriages because it's a picture of Jesus and his church. Reflect on the gospel. Thirdly, set your expectations. I, I do think that... There should be some romance going on in our lives, our whole married life. And the women said, I just gave you a freebie. I do. I, you know, we may not have the tingles, but I do think that we need to cultivate 
that kind of thing. But I think we need to also understand that that can't go on like 24-7. That there, we need to set our expectations that there's going to be turbulent times, but that those challenges can make us stronger. And so as we set our expectations, we're not thrown off by them, but we embrace them. And then we draw on God's help for us to work through them together. Fourthly, resolve your commitment. A big part of the battle, I think, is our will. If we're not all in, if there's always a back door that's sort of open, it's really hard to, to keep working when it gets really, really tough. Your spouse needs to know that they are, other than God, the most important person, thing, hobby in their life. Gary Smalley, who used to teach on relationships, used to say to the men, your wife needs to know that she's more important than your trout. <laughs> For guys who like fishing, if you don't know what a trout is, that's uh, fish. <laughs> your wife or your husband needs to know that he or she is more important than your children. Huh. One of the greatest gifts you can give your kids is to love each other with an undying commitment and highest priority. We used to tell our kids that all the time when we're going out and babysitters with them, whatever. This is for you. (laughs) And it is. Lastly, be proactive. If I was married and I... Uh, left this talk this morning, at some point today, I would spend some time in conversation and just ask each other, what would it take? What would it take to move our marriage from where it is just to be a little bit better and then don't be defensive? When you get an answer, what would it, what would it take? Listen, respond. Maybe you're in a place where you need to get help. Never stop investing in your marriage relationship. Never stop investing. If you've been married two years, you've been married 10, you've been married 15, 20, 25, never stop investing in your marriage relationship. You know, I think Central Heights Church is a community that believes in marriage and wants to come alongside. I look at our marriage mentors and the ministry they have here. We've had premarital regular marriage events. We want to be that kind of community that keeps its commitments and encourages others to do the same. And that is most explicitly highlighted in the commitment of marriage. Let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, I ask you to take the words that I've spoken this morning You know the vast landscape of emotions and experiences that are represented here this morning and perhaps those will be listening online. Lord, I pray that you would take your truth and help us, each one of us where we're at, to apply it in ways, Lord, that bring us into the beautiful life, the better way that you have for us. God, I'm asking for the empowering of your Holy Spirit to live in the flourishing that you've called us to, and especially in our marriages. 
God, I pray a, a great blessing. I pray a, yeah, a Holy Spirit anointing on people that say, yes, we want our marriages to reflect Jesus and his church. God, take us where you want us to go. Would you give them courage and strength to go through maybe difficult conversations that they might know they need to have? And would you help them to celebrate your faithfulness as they're faithful to one another? I commit this all to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.